0: we can see that there are various definitions of what it means to be blessed. Now, for, for the culture at large around us, they would mostly deem what it means to be blessed, although they probably would not use that term. They would, use, they would say lucky or they've been, they've, things have fallen well for them. But by and large, they would say that material blessings are their measuring stick for blessedness or for happiness. They would, they would say that those who live in a large house or those who have a job that pays a lot of money, right, those who, who drive fancy cars and who gets in, they get invited to all these events, that those people are truly happy and blessed, right? And unfortunately, this has even kind of crept into the church in some sense, that the world, they measure things mostly by numbers, and especially in our American context, we we think of the numerical value of something as the measuring stick of its worth. But we oftentimes look at churches who are growing in numbers and who are about to do big building projects of being blessed. And they are blessed. We cannot deny that. We think of the words of John the Baptist when he says that a person cannot receive not even one thing unless it is given to him of God. So there is a blessing upon it. There is a blessing in the material things. There is a blessing in, in sometimes grand material things. But how often do we sometimes get caught up in the material things to forgetting the greater spiritual blessings that God has given to us? The things that we might not be able to measure with by counting them. Or the things that we might not be able to see with our own eyes, the physical things. And to press it home a little more, how how often do you and me, how often do we look at these things? How often do do we get so enamored with the material to the neglect of the spiritual? Do we fall into that trap? Because after all, we, are, we live in the midst of a culture who, who bombards us with these things. We cannot turn the TV on one second without being bombarded with all these material things and, and, and trying, to, trying to allure us to be, to be captivated by them. But I think that here in Psalm 128, the Holy Spirit is, is giving us a definition of true blessedness. A definition of true blessedness. And I think in a, in a nutshell... The text is, is teaching this, that true blessedness is having the name of God placed upon you and enjoying the everyday gifts God has given. That true blessedness is having the name of God placed upon you and enjoying the everyday gifts He has given. Now, our context of, of Psalm 128 is that Psalm 128 is one of the songs of ascent. Which, I mean, there are 15 of these songs of ascent. They, they begin at verse or, or Psalm 120 and they, they run through Psalm 134. And these Psalms of Ascent would have been used or they sung or recited as the people, the Israelites, would have traveled up to Jerusalem for one of the three appointed feasts during the year. They would have, sometimes these songs are called Songs of Pilgrimage, as they would make their way to Jerusalem. And so this, this, this psalm would have been something that would have been sung at least three times a year, and so it would have been very much on their mind. But while they were in Jerusalem, while they have traveled up, the pinnacle of their time there would have been that the ironic the, the benediction, when they're in Jerusalem, right before they're about to leave and go back to their homes for the, for the, until the next feast would have come, the priests would have, would have pronounced the ironic benediction upon them. And this is the benediction that we're given in, in Numbers chapter 6. And it's interesting because the whole point of, of the Aaronic benediction is the placing of God's name upon the people. Just, just by way of reminder, I'd like to read it. In Numbers chapter 6 verse 24 begins the blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. But then in verse 27, we have this explanation. So shall they, being the priests, put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. So, so, the, pinnacle, the, so the pinnacle of their time in Jerusalem would have been the name of God being placed upon the people. And, and for this reason, I would like us to look at Psalm 128 through the lens of the Aaronic benediction for a few reasons, for two reasons mainly. One, because it, was, it would have been so intertwined, the timeline, as the people would have sung this psalm as they go up to have the Aaronic benediction placed upon them. But also, and, and possibly more profoundly, that within the Psalms of Ascent, of the 15 of them, 12 of them echo the Aaronic benediction. And particularly, our psalm this evening has two lines that echo the Aaronic benediction. In verse 5, we have, The Lord bless you. And then the last line of verse 6, Peace be upon Israel. So you have this very close connection between these psalms of ascent and also the Aaronic benediction. So I want to just kind of lay that aside for a moment, and we'll come back to the idea of the Aaronic benediction after we've kind of gone through this psalm for a minute. So, would you look at me at verse one? We'll read verse one and two, then look at them. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. The the psalmist opens with this declaration of blessing. Blessed is everyone. But then he gives a caveat, then he gives two clarifying phrases, because we cannot say that every man, woman, and child upon this earth is blessed of God, or, has the, or another way to look at it is to have the favor of God upon you, to be blessed is to have the favor of God upon you. He gives these two clarifying statements. The favor of God is upon, one, those who fear the Lord, and secondly, those who walk in His ways. So what does it mean to fear the Lord? We think of this word fear, and and, and we sometimes think of it as as trembling, or we think of it as being terrified and frightful. And in other contexts in the Bible, yes, there are times when we should tremble at God. We should tremble at who He is. But I think the context here bears that we should view this word fear, or to fear the Lord, as to be in all of Him, to be in all of God, and to reverence God for who He is. The person who, who fears the Lord or who is, who is in all of the Lord is, is the person who, who, who looks upon God, who, who, who studies His Word, His, His, the revelation of who He is. They, they read those great texts of Isaiah 6 and in Revelation, and they read that the, the, the crowning attribute of God is that He is holy, that they see how God is unique, that He is above all His creation and that there is none like Him. The one who fears the Lord minds his word and they see that God is good and gracious. That he is good and kind and that he sends rains upon the earth to produce fruit and food for his creation. Even though his creation has rebelled against him and is under a curse, he still out of his loving kindness provides what they need for sustenance and to survive. Those who fear the Lord mind his word, and they see that God is faithful and he's a covenant-keeping God. And we can look through Israel's history and we can see that, that even though Israel was faithless to the covenant, that God was always faithful, that because he had bound himself by covenant to the people, that time after time, for the sake of his own name, he acted in history for them. And we can even see that in our own day and age. God acting for his people for the sake of his own name and glory. But I think that the thing that those who fear the Lord look at and marvel at the most is God's love. We see, God's, we see God expressing his love for his creation in redeeming them. That the one who fears the Lord stands in awe of, of who God is, what he has done for his people, and what he is continuing to do throughout history. Not only do those who fear the Lord, those who are blessed fear the Lord, that they have this disposition of heart, but that, that disposition of heart, that change goes out to every part of their life, right? Because I think really we could look at those, the, the term, the, the phrase to fear the Lord as really the Old Testament way of talking about being nothing less than born again. That this is a complete transformation, that the, the, the wicked do not fear the Lord, the wicked do not stand in all of who God is. But it is when God acts upon a sinner that He regenerates them, that He quickens their hearts by the Spirit, He removes that heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh in order that they may desire Him, that they may love Him. And part of the desiring of God is that they desire to walk in His ways. To walk in His ways is nothing short than to walk according to His law, the very expression of God's character and His will. That because they have been renewed and regenerated and they have been made alive to the holiness and the goodness of God, they now desire to, to align their life, to live their life in a way that pleases Him. That their desire is to please God. And I think that the favor of God falls upon those who walk in his ways in two, in two ways. First, it is a great blessing to even desire to walk in God's ways, is it not? It is a great desire to even want to please God. Because we can look out at our world nowadays, and it is this way throughout all of history, but we look out at our world and how many people rail against the law of God. How many people constantly kick against what He desires? So it is, it is a blessing to even desire to walk in His ways. But secondly, the favor of God is upon those who walk in His ways because God's law is the very best for mankind. That because God, by virtue of being the creator of mankind, he knows exactly what they need and he knows exactly how they should order their life. And, and his law is nothing short than the very best for mankind. We can look at two examples just of the Ten Commandments. Think of, think of the first commandment, thou shalt, not have no, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Well, is it because that God thought that, well, I'm a little better than all these other gods and I can give to my people just a little more than them? No, it is the fact that God knows that all the idols of men are worthless. That He knows that all the the gods of the people have ears but do not hear the cries of their people. They have mouths but they do not speak and communicate with their people. They have hands but they cannot act. For their people. And so God knows that the very best for mankind is to come to him seeking mercy. Now, first and foremost, God is a jealous God and he will be honored and praised. And that is the, that is the, that is the pinnacle of why, we, of why God should be praised and honored. But also it is in praising and honoring God and, and seeking his face that we are blessed. But also, secondly, we can look at the seventh commandment Thou shalt not commit adultery. God, being a faithful God, knows that the very best for His people is one man and one woman together in marriage for life. That in this context, that God who created the man and the woman and who created the institution of marriage knows that faithfulness within the covenant of marriage is the most blessed way to live. And can we not see this in our own day and age that despises marriage? And how it not only is it a ble- not only is the covenant of marriage when it is done God's way a blessing to the man and the wife, but it is also a blessing to the children and it is also a blessing to the broader society. I mean look at look at our culture. I mean it, the 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 despising of marriage tears at the very fabric of society. And don't we live in a day and age that, is, that we can just see how our culture is, is, is being degraded because we have cast off the things of God, because we have, we have scorned the very best that he has instituted for us to follow. So The favor of God is, is not only upon those who are in awe and reverence of him, but who also walk in his ways and seek to please him in all that they do. Now this verse one here is kind of, I want us to look at it as the fountainhead of the rest of of the rest of the verses, verses two through six. Because really, if we take out verses one, the rest of it falls apart. it is It is upon the foundation of the favor of God that verses two through six are even possible. And also as we go through these these the blessings of those who fear the Lord and the blessings of those who walk in His ways, the gifts, I want to also remind us that, that this psalm is, is wisdom literature, just like the Proverbs and just like the Book of Job and Song of Psalms are, that these are not necessarily promises, but they are general principles. But by and large, they are true. Because, we can, because as we go through these, we might be tempted to think, well, there are many people, there are many brothers and sisters around the world who fear the Lord, who seek to walk in His ways, but yet they're being persecuted, they're being martyred. So as we go through these, let's just be reminded that, that these are by and large true, but not necessarily promises, because they're wisdom literature. One of the first gifts that God gives to those who have His favor, verse 2, you shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. This this phrase, "to eat the fruit of the labor of your hands," is something that is really very common in the Old Testament. We can we can see that in we go all the way back to creation. What was Adam created to do? Adam was created to work and tend the garden. He was he was he was created to be. He was created to be God's vice-regent over creation and to tend it. But what happens just a few chapters later at the fall, God looks at Adam and says, because of your sin, the ground is now cursed. And now from the the sweat of your brow will you now work to cultivate food. So no longer would, would it be easy for Adam to bring forth food from the ground, but now he would have to work hard and he would eat thorns and thistles the rest of his life to provide for he and his family. Not only do we see this in, in, the, in creation and in the fall, but also before the people, before the Israelites are about to go into the land, in, in, the, in the book of Deuteronomy, God lays down blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And one of the curses for disobedience to the covenant was that they would not eat the fruit of the labor of their hands, that they would plant vineyards, that they would plant gardens, but they would not eat the fruit of their labor. The prophets pick up on this and particularly I think of Micah chapter 1. Micah when he's indicting the people right before they're about to go into exile, he says to them, you will build houses, but invading armies will come and destroy them because of your unfaithfulness. That you will plant a vineyard, but you will be exiled before it bears fruit. That you will work, that you will work but you will not get to eat the fruit of that labor. But here in Psalm 128, we begin to, kind of, we begin to see the, the turning of that. We begin to see God beginning to redeem His creation, and, and particularly upon those who have His favor. That those who fear the Lord, that those who have come to Him seeking mercy do not have to go about their day-to-day life of labor and work in the home and outside of the home and, and working with hands and working with our minds, just, just wondering whether or not it will yield anything. And this particularly should, bears, bears upon our own lives. That we can work, that we can go about our day-to-day lives, working though work is now hard because of sin and the curse, but we can work with expectation. That we can work knowing that that because we have the favor of God upon us, that He will bless that labor. That He will bless that work and that we will be able to enjoy the fruit of our hands. The blessing and the favor of God is not only upon our work, but is it upon our family. Look at verses 3 and 4 with me. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. And here in, in verses 3 and 4, we're just given this, this beautiful picture of the gift of, of family and marriage. Now, verses 3 and 4, are they're addressed to men, particularly, and that, that aligns right with that it was only the men, being in the Psalms of Ascent, that it was only the men who were required to go up to Jerusalem. But nevertheless, this still has bearing for every single one of us. Verse 3, your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. So here we have the blessing upon the home. That it 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 is a great blessing and a joy for a wife to work within the home. And that as she labors and that as she enjoys the fruit of her hands, her whole household is blessed. That as that vine reaches to the very corners of all the house, that everything she does has God's blessing upon it. They will not only enjoy the blessing of marriage, but also of children. That the children will be like olive shoots or olive plants around the table. And I think it's very interesting that that the Holy Spirit uses these two, these two symbols of the vine and of the olive tree for several reasons. First, the, the vine or the grape or wine and also the olive tree, olive oil, are two symbols, two of the three main symbols for blessing, for God's blessing. We think of... We think of elsewhere in Proverbs it say it is wine that gladdens the heart of man. Or, or we think of Psalm 133, just a few, a few chapters later, saying that how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like precious oil on the head running down the beard. It's, it's the oil of gladness that brings joy to life. But also the vine and the olive tree need work. They need to be cultivated. The vine, the fruitful vine, being this symbol of of marriage, of of not only the gift and and the blessing of, of sexual intimacy within a marriage, but also the blessing of the relationship itself and the companionship between a husband and a wife. But again, we must understand this under the guise of walking in the ways of the Lord, It is not that just because two people come together in marriage that God immediately puts their blessing upon them and they can do whatever they want. But no, they must do marriage God's way. That the blessing of God is upon those who seek to do marriage His way. Which means that for the husband, that he leads his wife. That he is diligent in in laying before his family the word of God and teaching them in leading his families in the ways of God, that he loves his wife, that he cherishes her, just like he would his own flesh, that he seeks to make sure that her material and spiritual and emotional needs are met. But also on the converse, that the wife submits to her husband, that she seeks his good, that she works within the home, seeking the blessing of the home, and that so that, that this marriage is blessed because they do things how God has ordered them. But not only do we have the symbol of the vine as, 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 as the blessedness of marriage between a husband and a wife, but also the olive plants around the table. Now, what's, I find this very interesting that, that the, the term olive is used for children because the olive tree... Once an olive tree is planted, it takes 40 years to begin to produce olives. And, and I was thinking about this the other day of, of how many of us parents work with our children and we labor and we, we pray for them. We pray with them and for them when we cry out to God that he would, that he would work in their hearts and, we, and we're diligent in family worship. And yet how often can we become dismayed at some of their actions and their words? But here, this, this idea of children representing, or the olive tree representing children, is that the olive tree takes work in years. And we pray that it would take less than 40 years to see the fruit of our labors in our children. But I think it gets to an even greater reality of our children. Because of this, that though the olive tree takes 40 years to begin to produce fruit, that same olive tree can then produce fruit for hundreds of years after that. That single tree will outlive its gardeners. And so I think we we get this picture of that we're not just laboring in our children. We're not just laboring to, to raise our children in the fear and admonition of God just for their sake. But how often do we think that we are, we are raising our children for our grandchildren's sake or how often, or for our great-grandchildren's sake or, or those who we may never meet? And so we're given this beautiful picture of that, that our labor with our children in, the, in, in our home has these great generational lines that go down. And, and one illustration of this is there was an article written comparing, comparing the lineage and descendants of Jonathan Edwards... And, and, a con- and, and a common murderer of his day. And when you would look at the lineage, you would see Jonathan Edwards, the godly man, coming from his descendants, presidents of schools, lawyers, congressmen, teachers, some pastors. You would see the blessing of, of this godliness running throughout the generations. But then when you look at this common murderer, you would see the same. That, 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 that generation after generation, they were just, they were, they were lawbreakers and they were murderers. And so we, we can see the impact, that it, I think that gives a great illustration of the impact of, of how we view our children and how our children are raised and that, and that is important for us to take a, the long-term view. I think that we, we so often in our, in our American individualism, we, 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 get, we get clouded with that and we don't, think, we don't think that far down the line. How often do we pray? For our great-grandchildren or our grandchildren that aren't even born yet. If the Lord tarries and, and the generations go that long. How often do we think of in those terms? And I think that, that this, this idea of the olive shoot, the olive plant and the, and the work that it takes. But yet how long it bears fruit is a great symbol and a great encouragement to us. That though we may not see fruit right away in our children. That we nevertheless should continue to labor, continue to strive for godliness, and to lay before them the, great, the truths of God and to raise them in His ways. We have been shown that the favor of God is not only upon the individual in the changing of the heart and, and upon the, the labor of their hands, that they, can, they have the gift of working, that that gift is then brought into the home and enjoyed by the family, that the gift of, of, of marriage and the gift of children. Is, is, is the favor of God upon us. But also we see, this, we see this shift beginning in verse 5. Verses 5 and 6 deal with the future. Verses 1 through 4, we're more about the here and the now. But now when we come to verse 5, we have this shift. Reading verse 5, The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children... Peace be upon Israel. Verses 5 and 6 show us that that not only is the favor of God for the here and now, for today, but it also gives us this great gift of hope for the future. This great gift of hope that as we fear the Lord, as we walk in His ways, as we seek to, to live our lives in a manner that pleases Him and we work toward His will and His ends, that we can hope in the future to come. I think of, of even in my own home, I think of, 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 of what, is, what is it going to be like for, for my children? What is the world going to look like in 20 years, 30 years? What is, what is America going to be? What is the culture, what is the, 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 mor- the moral soil of the culture going to be like in those days? But here, the psalmist is giving us great encouragement. The psalmist is giving us great encouragement that, that yes, though times may be hard, though times may, may may seem like they have no hope, that because of the favor of the Lord, because God looks upon us and shines his face upon us, that we can have hope in the future, that we might see the prosperity of our city, and that we might enjoy long life to see our grandchildren. And it's at this point that I kind of want to circle back and, and, and bring in this idea of, of looking at this psalm through the Aaronic benediction. Because how great it is to read of these things that we would enjoy the gifts of, of work and the gifts of marriage and the gifts of children and the gifts of hope to the future. But we must ask ourselves, who is it that has the favor of God upon them? I mean we read that it is the fear of the Lord and that we walk those who walk in his ways. But I particularly want to want to put it under the view of that those who have God's name placed upon them. And I think that the Aaronic benediction is showing us nothing less than than the great doctrine of adoption. The great the doctrine of adoption that God brings sons and daughters into his house because we think of it in these terms what in in our own country right when when a couple adopts a child that when the when the judge announces that adoption final they bring that child into their home and what happens their name is placed upon them and they are entitled to all the gifts and the blessings of that household and so I think, that, I think that we should view Psalm 128 in light of this great doctrine of adoption in that God is pla- those who have the favor of God are those who have His name placed upon them. That true blessedness is having God's name upon us and enjoying the benefits and the privileges of being a part of His house. In our day and age of, of, of materialism and constantly being bombarded with all these things, Being a child of God is far more blessed than to be one of the five richest people in the world, or even to pastor the largest church in town. But how often do we view these these simple yet profound blessings of God, namely that His name is upon us as His children, and that as His children, He delights to give them good gifts. The gifts, of everyday, the gifts that we see in everyday life. That we wouldn't be looking forward a month to this vacation that we may be taking, that we will not be looking forward necessarily to a new promotion at our job, but that we would, that we would enjoy the things of everyday life. How often do we sit down at our table at the end of a day, that we've come to the end of our workday, and we look around our table, and it is, isn't it a joy to see our children there? Or our grandchildren? Isn't it a joy to see our spouse sitting across the table and we are enjoying a meal together? We're enjoying the fruit of the labor of our hands. We're enjoying the, the relationship of marriage. We're enjoying the blessing of children. We're enjoying the relationships around that table. And by extension, as, as we have just done this afternoon, as we sit down, as we've gathered together as the family of God after a long week, and we enjoy The blessings of a meal, the gift of fellowship with one another that we enjoy by being welcomed into God's family. How often is it that that, that you think of these things, the gifts of everyday life, as, as being more blessed than many other things that we can think of? True blessedness is having the name of God placed upon us, and this is only accomplished by the killing of God's own Son. Think about this. We, you and I are brought into God's family. We are adopted as His sons and His daughters because He did not spare His only Son. That He hung His Son upon that tree so that you and I would be washed with His blood. That we might be cleansed of our sins that kept us outside of the family of God. That kept us apart and, and at enmity with God. But yet God has graciously and he has lovingly crucified the sinless lamb, his beloved son, so that you and I might receive adoption as sons and daughters of God. And I would hope that that everyone here today is is of that family. But, But if you are not, let me remind you that above the door to the household of God, read the words repentance and faith. That it is only through repentance and faith in in the substitutionary atoning death of Christ that we are allowed entrance into his family. That we are given the gifts and the blessings and all the rights of being children of God. So as we go into this week, as we leave here, I'd like to challenge us. As we sit down to the table tonight, look around. Look around at your children and look around at your family and know that this is one of the greatest gifts of God. That as we go into our work week, that we have the gift of working. We have the gift of of, of working with, with hope that, that God will bless that labor. That we will not labor in vain. That we may not see every single fruit of that labor. But nevertheless, we can still work with expectation and hope. Whether we are working in the home with our children and raising our children. Whether we are going out working with our hands or our minds, we can work with expectation and joy, knowing that we have the blessing and the favor of God upon that. And that we can also look to the future, that no matter how bleak our country may, may go into, may, no, how, no matter how bleak the times may be, that God controls those times. That God is the God who shapes the future. And that He has His children numbered. And He knows them all, He has paid an ultimate price for them all, and that He delights in them. And in that, you and I can take great hope and joy as we walk through this world, as we walk through our pilgrimage to the New Jerusalem, as we look forward to that great day where we will gather together all the saints of history, all the sons and the daughters of God throughout history, and we assemble around that great throne of grace, and we enjoy fellowship with our Heavenly Father